Our guest today approaches life with flexibility, humility, self-awareness, and no doubt a lifelong learning stance. Raised as a homeschooled student, he shares a lot with us about the style of learning that worked for him and probably would work best for many others too. We talked about this idea of meeting students where their interests are in terms of building a foundation for learning. We also learned how he started out as a teacher, became a lawyer, and ultimately found his true calling, to date that is, as the head of marketing for a successful podcast hosting startup, Buzzsprout. We got into his reasons for career changes and tapped into his expertise as he shared some amazing tips on how to successfully market and grow a show. Please welcome to episode 23, Albin Brook. Yeah, so thank you for doing this today. The first question I would like to ask is if I were to bring you in to speak to, let's say, my business class in high school and you were to speak to them about entrepreneurship, how would you tell them who you are and kind of what you do? Sure. I'm Albin Brook. I'm the head of marketing for Buzzsprout. We're a podcast hosting company, so online uh, web technology. Uh, My background is that I was a teacher overseas in Haiti. And then after that, I practiced law for, uh, went to law school and practiced law for a year and a half. So it's a little bit of a circuitous route, but I ended up in the podcasting tech space. Well, I'm interested right off the bat that you mentioned the idea of teaching because as a fellow teacher myself, this concept of learning is obviously an important thing and definitely ties to podcasting. When it comes to your own, let's say going way back, learning experiences as a child, how did you find uh, school? What was that experience like for yourself? Well, I've got a different experience there as well. I was actually the oldest of five kids and we were all homeschooled. I spent one year in public school, eighth grade. Uh, Besides that, all of it was learning at home. So it's very much self-directed, project-based learning. It's funny now finding schools for my daughter. I often see these like Montessori or Waldorf schools and I go, oh, that's kind of more similar to what I did. It was very academically rigorous, but it was very child-directed. And so it was really beneficial for me because I would get really into math. And so I could spend a lot of time following that interest and period where I wanted to learn everything there was about World War II and just went and would spend a lot of time reading. And it allowed me to kind of pursue my own passions. And I think it's what's made me more of a lifetime learner is that uh, school was rarely something I had to do, but it was something that I had the opportunity to do and was supported in doing. Was it circumstances in your life and family that led to you being homeschooled and having more project-based learning? Or was it a decision? Do you know? It was definitely a decision. So, I mean, now homeschooling is becoming more popular and prevalent, but when we were doing it, it was pretty rare in the 90s. Well, a lot of the families, there were families that chose it for religious reasons, but a lot, and we would fall into this group, would be you're just trying to find an environment that works best for your kids. So for us, sitting down for nine hours a day at a table just wasn't going to be the best environment for me or my brother or my siblings. So that was where we first landed. And I think my parents probably thought there was a point that we would grow out of it. We moved when I was you know, early in school, so there, that might have been a little piece of it. But we tried that eighth grade. I thought that I'd go there and then go to high school and re- quickly realized all the benefits of homeschooling that I was giving up. And so we went back to finishing out before I went to college. 
I was curious to ask about that eighth grade, what I used to teach seventh and eighth grade. I had a student come to me for the first time ever as a homeschool student. And I remember people worried about his transition into the school socially and otherwise. And what was fascinating to everyone involved, I wasn't overly surprised, but what was fascinating was he was immediately a leader. And I think because he was so comfortable with his school experience, etc. However, one thing I know was that in his case, for sure, he felt bored a bit because there was wasn't that ability to just be creative and and figure out your own sort of, uh, as some people call, de-schooling or, or what have you these days. What did your sort of uh, schedule look like or how did you go about learning if it wasn't nine hours in a school? What did it look like for you? Almost every day started, I'd wake up naturally at like 9.30 in the morning and you grab some breakfast and you head over to the table and we would all work around our big, you know, dining room table and we'd all be working on different projects. And, you know, you have certain work. We would go to this kind of co-op once a week where uh, lots of different parents were teaching different classes. So um, my dad was an attorney and he taught me and a lot of my best friends English. One of my best friends, his dad was a doctor and he was teaching uh, some science classes. And so we actually had this really nice environment where you had a social aspect once a week where it had lots of different kids and we were really were getting some expert level teachers who may not be expert in teaching but they've only got a class of three or four students and they're really focused because you know these are the kids that they've known their entire lives so i grew up with a lot of the same friends from you know second grade all the way up through graduating high school um a lot of us were you know doing school together and you kind of knew everybody's family and you were very involved in uh school throughout the day it would just look like a lot of self-directed learning and there was not a clear in my mind, split between school time, homework time, and play. Like there'd be times where you just knew you've got a lot of energy and go out and play baseball with my brother for a bit. And then we'd come back and, you know, you may find yourself working, you know, reading a textbook late at night because it was interesting. And so that was the real value for me was that school was never this like overly painful area of life that was really boring, which I found the one year of actual school and then um, quite a bit of, you know, law school and college. Some of the classes, there's times where, you know, it is a pretty boring subject. Homeschooling really wasn't like that for me because it was a lot of leaning into the areas that you enjoyed and finding new ways to explore the areas that you didn't. The Mamba mentality and Kobe Bryant are big influences in my life. And obviously losing him was a big moment uh, culturally and socially for a lot of people beyond the sports world. But one thing that I loved about his work was that it was often educational based. And I don't think a lot of people knew that. And one of his favorite clips that I like listening to is when he speaks to this idea that we don't need to talk about how to help kids learn in school. We just need to almost take a step back because they're going to guide us towards what they want to learn. And interestingly enough, he was doing a lot of work to try and bring that to the podcast space, which is is pretty neat too, given the context of our conversation. You mentioned going to law school. I was going to ask, you became a lawyer. Prior to that, was that a pathway that you kind of always felt you would have towards law? I don't know. I mean, there. my grandfather was a judge. My dad is still a practicing attorney. And when I was teaching school, I knew I wasn't going to do that long term. And I think I 
started taking some LSATs and I thought maybe law, there's some in, things about it that are interesting. And I started scoring well enough that I went, oh, I could probably go to a pretty good law school. And I know that both my grandfather and my dad at separate times were like, I don't think you're going to love this type of work, but you follow your own path. And pretty quickly realized they were right. So I practiced. Um, I worked in law firms for, I think, two years before law school, three years of law school, and then one and a half of practicing law after that. And, you know, it was pretty clear when I was practicing that the day-to-day -day life of a lawyer was not what I wanted to be doing for the rest of my life. It was really long hours. It was often very boring work, just reviewing documents as background for, you know, really large cases. Um, the biggest, you know, cases I'd work on would be, you know, $150 million dispute. But really all you're doing in the end is trying to figure out which of a few different companies bears most of the burden for, of, you know, the mistakes that happened. And, you know, there always felt like any mistake could be catastrophic. And yet the moment by moment was just reviewing, you know, thousands and thousands of boring emails that were sent over the years. And I remember specifically looking over to some of uh, the people I was working with who'd be 10 years my senior and realizing they were working just as hard, if not harder than me. They were making good money, but that was the cost that they often were calling their children at night, saying good night over the phone because they knew they wouldn't be home before they'd gone to sleep. And it was pretty clear what law was going to afford me would be you know, a healthy salary, but it would cost me you know, a lot of time, a lot of experiences, and I'd miss out on the things that I really wanted to be doing in life. And it wasn't the trade I wanted to make. And tech at that time was uh, really where a lot of my passions were. And podcasting specifically was an area that I thought was really interesting and wanted to work in. Now, I'm sure grandfather and father were a step ahead of the podcasting thing, though, when they said that they didn't <laughs> think you'd want to be in law. Why do you think they said that? I think because I've always been pretty social and I wanted to be around people and I always pushed back on, you know, sit down and spend 12 hours just going through something. I always wanted to be interacting with people and kind of pursuing what was interesting, at least what was interesting to me in the moment. I think that I'm probably above average when I get to direct my own path and find what I want to work on. I do above average work. But when I'm kind of forced to do the same thing day in, day out, I think I have way less stamina for that than most people. And so I would find myself, you know, most days, oh, I might have dozed off for three, four minutes there. What was I? I didn't get any, you know, I didn't review any more documents and would see plenty of people at the office. I'm like, I think you're getting this done a lot faster than me. And it really was due to, you know, maybe it was some part of my upbringing or schooling or just the way that I was wired, but it was definitely not something I was going to be good at. And I think I knew that pretty well. I was probably going to be an average, below average attorney. I'm sure a lot of your transferable skills would have been assets too, but it is such an interesting thing. Do you feel that part of that same mindset was what kept you from wanting to be a teacher long-term too? Or what was it that about teaching that you knew wouldn't make it a lifelong thing? Well, I might've been a worse teacher than I was a lawyer. I don't know. You know, I went and taught in rural Haiti. Uh, I was just teaching students computers and English, a little bit of astronomy. And I think I had a view that I knew how to teach because I went to college and I saw good teachers teach. When I was there, didn't really have any tools to know how to manage a classroom, how to teach 
at a variety of levels because it became pretty clear. Some students were two, three grades ahead of where I was teaching, and quite a few were two grades below where I was teaching. I just didn't have the tool set to really, you know, be a very good teacher. It was incredibly edifying experience for me um, just living in Haiti and also talking with these students. And I hope that I was able to help teach them a bit of English. But that was just an experience that, you know, again, you've got to know when to quit. And sometimes you can quit because you can see this is not something that I am particularly suited towards. And teaching and then law were both uh, that for me. Yeah, knowing when to hold them and when to fold them, so <laughs> to speak. I certainly can connect to so many things that you're speaking about when it comes to pursuits of careers and passions, etc. This is not my episode. Uh, I'm curious, when it came to this idea of going from law to where you find yourself now, did you make that transition gradually? Was it kind of like a hard stop and switch? Or how did that kind of play out for you? So I was living with three guys who I'd all known. We'd all known each other in college when I was practicing law. Uh, one was working pretty much as a groundskeeper for a college, you know, and he would work these incredibly long hours and put in a ton of work, you know, was really not appreciated for it and was not compensated for how hard he was working. Uh, then another one was doing sales. And it was very clear that the amount of time he was putting in was not really correlated with how well he was paid. He was often paid pretty well. Another one was in technology and was making really good money and had a, you know, he would be able to come home early, work from the house. He'd be able to take off a day when, you know, something came up in life. And I realized between the four of us, we had entirely different lives based on the careers we picked. Compensation, um, the respect you were given, the lifestyle it afforded and the day in day out grind were different for all four of us. I know that we all know that it really was only that experience that like continually showed me over and over, you know, a cool opportunity would come up and friends would do something and two of us would get to go do it. The other two had no chance of going because of the work we'd picked. The friend that was working in technology was, um, I think, the fourth person to work for Buzzsprout. And so I remember I was really into podcasting and was kind of always chatting with him. And I remember saying like, you know, if you got me an interview there for anything, I would take it. I was so ready to leave law and I knew I wanted to be in podcasting. There was a point where they uh, went to the first podcast movement, realized uh, Buzzsprout was a lot smaller than they thought compared to the industry. They only met one customer and they came back saying, well, what if we try to hire someone to do a little bit more of a marketing role? My friend John was saying, hey, I have a friend. He's an attorney. I think he would want that. So I took a kind of entry level job running support for Buzzsprout and also doing marketing on the side until we started getting Buzzsprout to grow enough that I was able to transition full-time into the marketing role. So many things that we could jump on there in terms of podcasting in general, but for the people who don't know, what does Buzzsprout as a company do? If you listen to a podcast on your phone, um, you might listen to it in the Spotify app or Apple Podcasts or on Google Podcasts. All of those apps, they don't actually have the audio file themselves. They are actually getting those audio files from someone else. And that is a company like Buzzsprout. What we do is we facilitate, we just make it easy for people to upload their podcast to us. And then we help distribute that podcast 
to all the different apps and directories across the web. And then we make it really simple for you to see the stats, to learn more about your listeners, to continue to grow your podcast. So we're trying to give you all the tools to be a successful podcaster. And we do that in a variety of ways where all of our marketing is really focused on educational content. We uh, have a really great US-based support team that are all experts in podcasting that answer on average within 16 minutes of anyone emailing Buzzsprout. So we're always trying to do our very best to kind of walk alongside of you and help people with their podcasts. And then the whole goal of our app, you know, our team building our app is they're trying to make podcasting as easy as possible. We're not trying to overcomplicate it. We want you to be empowered to make a great show. So that kind of is my pitch for what we're doing at Buzzsprout. Yeah, I think that sums it up pretty well. It's interesting because there are a lot that brag about being able to host podcasts, you know, come use our service. But obviously, you guys are a leader in this space. What do you think sets you apart? Is it that simplicity? Origin story for Buzzsprout is, um, this is before I was here, but we had a small website builder. And we had a lot of NGOs and nonprofits and churches using the software. And we kept hearing them say, we want to put audio files on our websites. And when we would talk to them and kind of are researching this issue a little more, what we realized they were asking for was actually a podcast. And so in 2008, we were going through the process of teaching people how to set up a podcast with the tools that were out there and then put those players on our sites. And if you think about what a nonprofit is often working with, it's a lot of kids that donate 50 hours of time and before they go on to college. So they, they have a lot of smart, ambitious young people, but they often don't have a lot of continuity if who's working on a project. So you might have, you know, a really smart girl come in, set up a podcast for you. She figured out using this complicated tool and then left. And now the podcast just goes idle and nothing new gets uploaded. So the problem we wanted to solve with our tutorials in the beginning and then eventually by building our own app was how to make it super easy for people to start a podcast so that even if it's somebody who's just recently retired and is donating time to their church or somebody who's wearing 50 different hats at a nonprofit, that both of them are able to get a podcast online and into all these directories without a lot of headache. We'll obviously talk a lot about marketing and some of your expertise in areas in, in helping people get their own podcasts set up and going and that kind of thing. Before we get too far away from it, I'm curious about, again, when it comes to that sort of job switch, another theme of our show is that so many people want to get into a different line of work, but they feel stuck for so many years. There's something about you that made you decide to go do that or pursue it, whereas a lot of lawyers just stay. What do you think it is or what would you recommend to people who are, who are feeling stuck like you were? I remember listening to a podcast episode. It was an early episode of the Freakonomics podcast, and they were going through social science research on people who quit things early. We often moralize quitting that if you quit, you're bad, and you're quitting because you didn't have what it took to keep up it with the gym that you were going to, or if you quit college, that it was probably a failing because you weren't smart enough. But they helped reframe it in my mind as sometimes you're going down the wrong path, and the best way way to move forward is actually to turn around and go back. And if you're in college and you know this isn't working for you, then maybe the best path is to like look at a trade school. For me, if you're on the path of being an attorney and you know, I, I just felt like I was constantly looking down the path ahead of me. It wasn't like work like this for two years 
and then get the lifestyle you want. It was everything that law was offering me were things that I didn't want. I didn't really want to join a country club to try to get big clients. And I didn't want to drive a BMW because I didn't really care. And what I really wanted was to be able to take two weeks off in a row, which I realized almost no lawyers were able to do. <laughs> and so the big thing for me was one, not feeling like it was a failing if I quit Two, kind of identifying it early. And then three, really kind of just taking that plunge early on in my career. It would have been much harder. Uh, I just got married when I quit and my wife was supportive of it, which I was very blessed to have a supportive wife. What we needed to survive was a lot cheaper than what I may have kind of grown accustomed to if had I waited a few years. What's so enticing about different jobs that people feel stuck in is they often pay quite a bit of money. And if you get addicted to that money, um, in law, we always called it the golden handcuffs, you don't really feel like you can leave because you maybe have two BMW payments and you're paying for a house that you kind of can't afford. And you have two kids in a you know private school. Well, now you've actually made it so that making less than $200,000 a year isn't even an option or else you're going to have to undo all this stuff. So I was lucky enough to spot this early enough in life to say, we've got to make a change. We definitely better make it before I make the dumb decision to buy a car I can't afford or one of these other things. Whatever it was, it is inspirational, motivational, and all those sorts of things. And a good example, it'll be a great example for people listening to really reflect on that because I think that's what life is all about. Coincidentally, I wrote a poem with the youth I work with yesterday, kind of going back and forth between people who are super wealthy, beautiful people, as Ed Sheeran calls it, and people in jail, and then asking the question at the end of who's actually the one feeling stuck and serving time. And they really appreciated that because these youth are in jail. But we're just talking about this kind of idea, right? The simplicity of life sometimes and having seen you pursue that part, you know, the, the priorities, I guess, is pretty inspiring. So so thank you for sharing that. What was it about podcasting in particular? You've mentioned it a few times that this idea of podcasting was what you always appreciated because that was certainly early on for the general public in terms of getting into it. I think the first time I listened to podcasts was probably about 2006, just listening on like a Zoom or an iPod or something. I'd download them onto my computer and then put them onto, you know, my device when I'd go for a run or listen while I was driving across town. Then when I was in Haiti, you know, I rarely had electricity and almost never had internet unless I went to an internet cafe. You can't download like full episodes of TV shows, but light audio files were doable. And I would download this philosophy podcast. And I realized like I would listen to some of these episodes multiple times because I didn't have a ton else going on. But I also felt a real connection with the hosts. I felt a connection back to the states. And I realized just the power of the human voice, and especially in long form discussions, allowed me to feel a lot more connected than maybe I had expected before. So that was kind of where it first started turning the wheels of the power of podcasting. And then as I kept listening to shows, I realized podcasts are very different than maybe video content like YouTube. With video content, it kind of is asking for all of your attention. It's saying, hey, sit here and watch the host and how they move, but also listen. And it kind of has to be like much more fast paced, maybe a little bit more stochastic, random. There's lots of stuff going on to keep your attention. Podcasting on totally other side often is acknowledging that you're doing something else. You're probably 
mowing the grass or doing some chores or going for a run or driving your car, going for a workout, whatever it may be, you're probably doing something else. And the fact that you're doing something else helps you to focus on the conversation for much longer. And especially as I saw more and more media and news kind of move towards a little bit more sensationalism. Everything was a controversy. Everything was kind of exciting and it was building anxiety to keep us kind of hooked for longer. Um, as those segments were going down and getting shorter and shorter, well, podcasts were getting longer and longer and people were having not just 45 minute conversations, but often three hour conversations because that was the attention span of somebody listening to a podcast. And so those are some of the things. Some of those were probably there before I started podcasting. Definitely those are things I believe now about the medium. It's doing a much better job at solving some of these problems that we've seen with the internet of feeling disconnected from other people, not really taking the time to listen and to understand. We're able to dig into much more nuance in a podcast. And I think that podcasting is doing a really good job of solving those issues while providing really unique and valuable content for the listeners. Versus, let's say, two YouTubers fighting on TikTok for 15 seconds in a boxing match. Right. I mean, if you want a lot of viewers, yeah, hop over to TikTok and you know create something because the prospect of you getting 4 million views on your video, that is totally feasible. That's not going to happen on a podcast. What you're going to get on a podcast is maybe 100 people listen to you, but they listen for 45 minutes and they feel like they know you. And then now they've listened to, maybe they listen to your show for three years and they know so much about you. They learned so much about your point of view and they feel really connected to the show. If you're trying to build depth of connection to lots of people, podcasting is a great way to do that. If you want to connect to tens of millions of people who might barely know who you are, well, then things like TikTok make more sense. Every different social media platform and medium has its place. Podcasting, I think, is you know where I like to be, which is all the way over on the depth rather than the breadth. I think it's incredibly valuable because it facilitates those type of conversations. I completely agree. I wish I came to that realization far earlier or younger, I guess to use another word. But for those who feel like it's a little bit late or this quote unquote saturation in the market of podcasting, because I've heard that often enough, how do you respond to those people? I would say the first time someone told me that was the very first day I worked in podcasting in 2014. And he told me, oh, I don't know if I should launch. I should have launched a few years ago. Not now. It's too saturated. And back then, I think the number was probably like 60,000 podcasts in the entire world. And he thought he'd missed the boat. And then we passed 100,000. Everyone was saying the same thing. And then now we have passed 2 million podcasts. And I'm still confident we're very early on. Because when you look at the number of YouTube channels, there's probably like 50 YouTube channels for every podcast. There's hundreds of blogs. There's millions of Facebook pages. There's so much content on the web. And what we are learning over and over and over again is you're not speaking to an audience in just your local city, the 150 people you know. You're actually speaking to a worldwide audience of seven, eight billion people. And all you need to do is find 
a topic that matters to you that might be of interest to a few million people, 0.0001%. It doesn't have to be a very large group of people for you to find you know, a really core audience that's going to love your show. And a lot of the best shows that I've seen are people who are just totally tapping into what makes them them. And they're approaching a topic that they enjoy in a unique way. And whether that be your view on current events and politics, or maybe it's your interest in Dungeons and Dragons, or whatever thing that you enjoy, bring yourself to the table. There are people that will find your specific bend incredibly interesting and we'll tune into the show. Well, and you referenced the Freakonomics earlier, a philosophy podcast you listened to in Haiti. I can't ask you your favorite, probably, because it may be a conflict of interest. However, what are some other shows that stand out to you right now? I will uh, pull up my podcasting app. I listen to the Accidental Tech Podcast. It's a podcast about the tech industry. Conversations with Tyler, uh, with Tyler Cohen. Um, he's a professor at George Mason University, economics professor. Um, listen to other podcasts about tech, marketing podcasts, uh, Making Sense with Sam Harris, uh, Reply All, the 538 Politics. Anything that I get into at any point, I will probably go search those keywords and subscribe to a few shows. I'm very quick to find a new podcast and then also quick to drop it if it doesn't work. But a few years ago, I you know started reading a few of the Stoics. And so I went and found the top three podcasts on Stoicism. When that interest you know kind of waned in later years, I unsubscribed from them. But yeah, I'm always kind of testing out new shows and finding new interests. That's one of the things that I think that I really appreciate about doing an interview style show is that I felt when I designed this show that I wanted to be able to maintain the ability to do things that are novel or new or exciting. And I wasn't sure how to do that myself. So I thought that that would be one of the most competitive advantages to being able to interview someone, say, in a couple of years from now, who is in a movie or something, because I'm trying to inspire and show the behind the scenes of how to pursue that same type of life should you want to yourself. But in terms of styles of show, do you think that there's any one that is better? Or when people get stuck, I find it's a lot because they can't figure out how to structure their show. Well, I would actually say that the first thing is kind of a red flag. If people are saying, what's the most popular type of show? I often try to stop them quickly because the answer is like true crime and comedy. You know, lots of people listen to those types of podcasts, but I am not going to create a successful comedy podcast or true crime podcast because I'm not a comedian and I'm not overly interested in true crime. The podcast you should be creating is the podcast that's about something that's unique to you. You know, there probably are podcasts on almost everything. I have a good friend. He actually shoots a lot of footage for documentaries. Lots of them are on like Netflix and the news of big storms. So if there's ever a hurricane or there's tornado footage, he and his team have probably filmed it because they chase a lot of these storms. So he started a podcast called Tornado Trackers, where they were just talking about what it was like, what gear they used, uh, interviewing other people who are really interested in weather. And it's not a show that appeals to me. 
And it's also not a show that he ever asked what's popular. He just said, what's the thing that is inside of me that until he found two other guys that were interested in it, he had no one to talk to about it. Now what's happened is they've kind of flown this flag with YouTube and a Twitter and a podcast saying, hey, here's what we're into. And almost instantly, people started showing up saying, oh my gosh, I've always been into this stuff and I've never known anyone else who is into it. And they've started building a community around all of this stuff that they're already doing and they enjoy. So I would challenge your listeners, anyone thinking about starting a podcast or any type of content, don't look at the podcaster that is your idol and try to copy them. Instead, say, what is it in me that is kind of yearning to be set free? that wants to be doing something else. What do I want to lean into? So at one point in my life, that was technology and podcasting. I went, I really want to be learning more about this and talking to people about it, explaining why I think it's important. I don't want to be doing this legal review for 12 hours a day. And that was what led me into a career that was going to work really well for me. And so I tell your audience, you know, find what you're really into. Now, as far as format, interview shows are very popular because you do a lot of work on the front end, prepping questions and learning about your guest. But then your guest is going to provide a lot of the thought that goes into the episode. So that's really nice. I also often like breaking up podcasts into segments, especially if you maybe have a roundtable discussion. I'm on a show that's a roundtable discussion where it's three of us as the same three hosts, and we're talking about a specific industry, and we always outline our topics beforehand. And then you can go all the way to fully produced podcasts that are almost like an audio TV show where there's scripts, there's sound editing, there's production, there's everything. Interestingly enough, I don't want to get sidetracked by that, but I'm thinking of making one of those because I referenced Kobe earlier and that's what he was really doing a really cool job of working on. And I'm sure his team and studio he was building will still work on it. But I got two young daughters who have just such cute voices right now and love creating content, but I don't think YouTube's right for them and a wife who's done a lot of voiceover work. So I said yesterday, just yesterday, I said we should make like a little Paw Patrol type series. Wow. And uh, that that would be neat. I love but it. But it's like you can only do so many things at once. And for now, I got to put the energy into the, the, the quality and quantity, I suppose, of this. You know, that's great. As, as we wind things down, I think it would be good to get specific into marketing. I know you could talk for a probably four-year degree on it, but when it comes to the idea of I've created a show and I really want to get it out there and have it spread because while we do create for our own passions, obviously, if it's going to be successful to allow you to focus on it full-time, you need people to listen. So, uh, what would be kind of like your steps to succeeding in the marketing of a, a new podcast? When people think of marketing, they often confuse it with advertising. Advertising is the purchase of ads to get attention. And even that is only a segment of the marketing equation, getting attention. So I often first start at the way I think about marketing is we're trying to gain attention. We're just trying to get in front of people so that we can build trust and earn trust with any customers or listeners or anybody we're engaging with so that we can then build a community around whatever we're doing. If you think about the very best brands in the world, Apple, Coca-Cola, what they're doing is they are actually going through that process. They get attention. They found ways to consistently get in front of you, whether it be commercials or PR or just creating really cool products so you want to learn about them, then they earn your trust. 
You know, you can drink a Coke anywhere in the world and it tastes the same. And you have this super high level of trust that when you pop the top of a Coke, it's going to taste, you know, what you're used to and you'll find it delicious. If it one time out of 50 didn't taste right, you would actually lose a lot of trust and they would not be able to continue to get you to come back and buy. And then to build community. If you look at Apple, what they've done with getting so many people are so invested in this brand that all the, the relationship is you send them thousands of dollars and then they let you buy a computer or a phone. And yet they've still found this passionate fan base that loves them so much for it. And you look at there's so many memories that you may have that are associated with Coke, this times you drank a Coke with your grandfather, or maybe you're overseas and you drank one. A lot of brands are kind of doing this. So attention, trust, community. Ways to get attention is the first step. Um, you need to actually have your podcast out there, get it into directories so it can be found, uh, utilize social media so that you can actually have the chance for your podcast to get wide exposure. You can do things like purchase ads. The best way to purchase ads for a podcast are inside of podcasting apps rather than trying to run Facebook ads. I've never seen anyone do that successfully. Guest, being a guest on another podcast and just doing any sort of normal marketing activities to get people to know that this podcast exists. You know, doing things like actually saying exactly what your podcast is in the description, make it very clear in the artwork what it's about is really good for gaining that attention. Then trust, your listeners want to be able to trust that you will be there every week if you say you will. So when they go look in their app, the show is ready to listen to. I've seen a lot of podcasters make this mistake when they stop podcasting regularly. They start missing weeks without telling their audience, hey, it's gonna be a couple days late or I'm not gonna be here this week. It's totally fine to miss, but uh, you want to be building that trust with your listeners, same way that if you stopped showing up to dinner with a friend, you'd want to shoot them a text before they went there and missed you. If you want to be the expert on something, you know, you've got to put in the research. So a lot of times I hear people, maybe they're a fan of comic books and so they do a comic book podcast, but maybe they haven't read a ton of the comic books they're talking about. You need to go and do the research if you want to be the expert. That's part of building trust with your audience. And then bring it back to community because podcasts are mostly driven by word of mouth. And so you need to have a community aspect to your podcast. So I love podcasts that are vocal about how small they are. Let your audience know, hey, I really appreciate you listening. This show's only listened to by 200 people. Thank you so much for being part of this community. If you want to join me in a Facebook group or a Good Pods group or a Discord or wherever it may be, because I appreciate every one of you. Read reviews on your podcast so people know that you appreciate them. Anything you could do to build this community feel because you're the one who raised the flag saying, here's the thing that I'm into and other people found you. We'll now let them share their voice and their passion and their thoughts as well so that when the time comes to recommend your podcast, that they want to. They're like, oh, not only is this a cool podcast, it's exactly the show you'll love. And it's a show that I've been a part of for so long. And, you know, the community's great. And there's so much more invested uh, when they're recommending the show. So that's kind of the framework that I think about when marketing a podcast.
I think that's going to be really helpful. I always love having that one clip that really will support people uh, in pragmatic terms. So thank you for that. One final thought when it comes to podcasting, Call Her Daddy podcast sold to Spotify for 60 million, Joe Rogan for 100 million. When people look at this as a medium to actually want to go full time as a creative versus say using it as a lead generation tool to a course or something, I think that's straightforward. But if people want to do that, kind of like what Joe Rogan did, do you think that's realistic for someone who's not Joe Rogan or Barstool Sports? Uh, no. <laughs> the reason those shows are getting so much money is because Spotify is in this growth phase where what they want more than anything is to own the entire podcasting ecosystem. And to do that, they need to change listener behavior quickly and get lots of people to ditch the podcasting app they grew up on and move to Spotify. Well, the way that they can do that is by signing the biggest podcasters in the world and making them exclusive to Spotify. So they did it with Joe Budden. They did it with Joe Rogan. They've signed deals with Barack and Michelle Obama. You know, they just got Caller Daddy to join as an exclusive. Dax Shepard just took his show exclusive and there's probably tons that I don't know about and I've missed. Yeah, this is hundreds of millions of dollars that Spotify is putting into it, but they're not doing it because these podcasts are going to make them that much money. They won't. What they're doing it to do is this is an investment and a strategic bet that they will get so many new listeners onto the Spotify platform that long term that this can actually maybe be their platform. Maybe Spotify will become the place you go for audio, whether it be music, podcasts, or live. That's the one spot on the internet. That's what Spotify wants to do. And that's why these numbers that seem astronomical, they really are because it's just this is an important time in the industry for them to do that. If Spotify is able to win the industry, we'll see them act more like a YouTube, which doesn't pay anybody to join YouTube because you kind of have to join YouTube if you want the listeners. If you want to make money in podcasting, the best way to do it is to create unique, differentiated content, something that people can't find anywhere else. Be the person who will put out shows for years about chasing tornadoes because that's what you're into. And then eventually you can launch something on like paid podcasts or maybe through a Patreon or Apple podcast subscriptions and you can sell additional content to your subscribers or just ask them to support you with a monthly donation. I appreciate that. I know we need to wrap. All the things you just brought up were pretty amazing things that give insights into the business world of it. And perhaps a year or two down the road, we can run back in episode two. I have a couple very rapid fire things that I ask everybody and then I tie them together as content. Question one is one piece of advice you would pass on to the next generation. Ooh. Just be kind. I think kindness is probably one of the most important things that we often miss. Everybody is struggling in their own unique way, and we have no insight into what everyone else is dealing with. So approaching everyone with kindness is always a great thing to do. Two, something that you yourself are learning right now. Probably to be a better listener. As a podcaster, it's very easy to be the person talking all of the time. But being a husband, you're constantly reminded, not by your wife, but by yourself, that like we really are not as good at listening as we think we are. So that is definitely something I'm trying to do as a father, a husband, and as a friend, is learn to give people space to tell you what how they feel and what they're experiencing and listen in a healthy way. She'll appreciate that. I'm sure I can pass it on to her in, in terms of micro content. Uh, and then the third 
third being, what's a question that you think my answering could help my audience? So what would be one question you would ask me? Maybe why you believe entrepreneurship is so valuable. Because one thing I know people probably ask is, well, I don't know if I'm ready to take this leap. What's the value of entrepreneurship if I never work for myself? A very quick one right now, I'm, I'm speaking on this on Wednesday, is that I think it does tie to people's mental health. If the thing they're choosing is passion-based and it may not be monetized, it could be hobby, borders on monetized, but over time, if they're doing that every day and really loving it, even if they're going to a crappy job they don't like, it seems to improve vitality and, and mental health for people. But yeah, I'll think about it more and share it in the future and be sure to tag you. Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate your time and uh, where and why might people want to find you online? Probably the best place is Twitter slash Albin Brook. That's where I share anything that I learn about the podcasting industry, social audio or marketing. And any questions you have, I will definitely answer them and love just meeting and connecting with people. Often I'm doing Twitter spaces, kind of breaking down different things in the industry. Would love to connect with people there. I'm sure they will. You're a great person in the industry and it's tough to get shows off the ground because having guests is such an important part of it. So thank you so much for this. Well, thank you so much for having me. And scene. Thank you. All right. Talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. Bye. Wow. Thank you so much for listening. What another great episode of JKL. We really appreciate when you pass the show on to others and cannot say thank you enough. Thank you to our guest, Albin. What an amazing voice in the space of podcasting and marketing. It's our goal to have this change millions of lives. So please do subscribe, leave reviews, and it would mean the world if you could share it with others. Until the next episode, all the best. And remember, just keep learning.